1: This is a place where you can come not to be told what to think, but where you can encounter information you're not likely to encounter, many other places. This is a place to question the narrative, to think as clearly and independently about what's going on around us as possible, and most importantly, to figure out who you are and what kind of impact you intend to have on the world around you. Doesn't matter if it's big or small, the world needs you to live up to the reason that you were born. I know that sounds lofty. Maybe even a little intimidating, but I'm glad you're here. We'll uh, we'll be covering some pretty fun stuff today. I'll get to that in just a moment. I want to thank the sponsors who make this program possible. Truly, they are the ones who keep the wolf away from my door and allow me to focus laser-like on finding the best information that I can then share with you. They include Dixie Chiropractic, HSL Ammo, Sewing and Quilting Center, Monticello College, also Life Saving Food, and the Heather Turner team at Patriot Home Mortgage. So before I dive in today there's there's a theme that I'm going to be coming back to again and again in today's program and it's the understanding that uh, not everybody is ready to hear the truth. Now that's you and me sometimes. And there are some things that you present me with some truths that I'm not ready to hear and I'm I'm going to change the subject, I'm going to shut down, I'm going to uh, one thing I won't do, at least I try not to do is get uh, puffed up and mad. Oh, yeah, well, you know, now I have to dominate you and make you admit that uh, you're not right. There was a time when that was the preferred approach. I'd like to think I've outgrown it, but it's a normal human reaction. And a little bit later in the show, we're going to share a commentary from Caitlin Johnstone. Because, look, if you've tried to speak the truth, you know this with a certainty. You know, people say, I hate a liar. And, And we do. We don't like people who lie to us. But you know who they hate worse? Someone who tells them a truth that they're just not quite ready to hear. So, with that in mind, let's dive into some truths and see where it goes today. I hate to bring this up because I really, truly, in my heart, want to believe that the days of mask mandates are behind us. I mean, I don't know if you can... Can you remember what it was like going around and worrying, oh man, can I go in here? If I do go in here without a mask or walk into a store or a business or dentist office or whatever... Am I going to get hassled? Is someone going to accost me and, you know, want to, you know, put me in my place because I'm not doing what everybody else is doing? I know I've been just, I have been just relishing how nice it is to go out and see normality pretty much everywhere. But the mask mandates are not behind us. I've got a great article here from John Miltimore from the Foundation for Economic Education. Here's the crazy thing. The New York Times, in a recent article, actually concedes, you know, the uh, mask mandates, uh, well, they really weren't as effective as as we hoped they would be. They admit it didn't make a difference. If, If a particular locality or school district or whatever said, we want everybody masked up, it still didn't cause any appreciable difference between those places that didn't mask up. And yet the Biden administration is fighting to reinstate face masks. John Miltimore says throughout the pandemic, few things incited more discord than the mandated use of face masks as a preventative measure to reduce the spread of COVID-19. At various times, merely questioning the effectiveness of masks or mask mandates could result in a social media suspension. And it reminds us of when Senator Rand Paul received the boot from YouTube for citing research suggesting that cloth masks were ineffective at containing COVID, something CNN admitted later, uh, months later, actually. So while mask mandates have largely receded across the U.S., John Miltimore says arguments over their effectiveness have not. In fact, just on Tuesday of this week, President Biden's Justice Department asked a federal appeals court to overturn a district court or district court judge's order that declared the government mask mandate on airplanes, buses and other transit unlawful, stating that the CDC had not sought public comment prior to the order and failed to adequately explain its reasoning. Now, he points out here the Justice Department's timing could be inauspicious because the same day the DOJ's appeal was filed, the New York Times published an article that explores the ineffectiveness of mask mandates. David Leonhardt, a Pulitzer, Pulitzer Prize winning writer, begins by exploring an apparent paradox involving masks observed by epidemiologist Dr. Shira Doron of Tufts Medical Center. It is simultaneously true that masks work and mask mandates do not work. Now, the idea that mask wearing is effective, but mask mandates are not does indeed seem like a paradox. But Leonhardt accepts the evidence that masks can mitigate the spread of covid, even as he provides copious evidence suggesting that mask mandates are ineffective. This is a quote from him in U.S. cities where mask use has been more common. Covid has spread at a similar rate as in mask resistant cities. Mask mandates in schools also seem to have done little to reduce the spread. Hong Kong, despite almost universal mask wearing, recently endured one of the world's worst COVID outbreaks. Now, advocates of mandates sometimes argue that they do have a big effect, even if it's not evident in population-wide data because of how many other factors are at play. But this argument seems unpersuasive. After all, the effect of vaccines on severe illness is blazingly obvious in the geographic data. Places with higher vaccine rates have suffered many fewer COVID deaths, end quote. Now, John Miltimore says, well, the idea that masks work while mask mandates do not might seem like a paradox. There's actually a very simple explanation for the phenomenon, but it's not the only explanation. As Leonhardt notes, it's quite possible that people who choose to wear masks wear them differently than people who are required to wear them. Leonhardt says airplane, airplane messengers passengers rather, remove their masks to have a drink. Restaurant patrons go maskless as soon as they walk in the door. School children let their masks slide down their faces. So do adults. Research by the University of Minnesota suggests that between 25 percent and 30 percent of Americans consistently wear their masks below their nose. Even though masks work, Getting millions of people to wear them and wear them consistently and properly is a far greater challenge. That's according to Steven Salzberg, a biostatistician at Johns Hopkins University. End quote. So, John Miltimore says there's a popular adage among libertarians good ideas don't require force. Now, it's a good line, but it's also important to remember that force also yields dismal results. People tend to forget this, but it's an idea that Leonard Reed took seriously. In his 1969 essay, The Bloom Pre-Exists in the Seed, Reed argued that one could reasonably predict the ends of a given action based on the means employed. This is beautiful stuff. Reed says, examine the actions, means, that are implicit in achieving the goals. Implicit in the collectivist approach is the masterminding of the people. The control of the individual's life is from without. But for an individualist, what is valued above all else is is each distinctive individual human being. Any conscientious collectivist, if he could, properly evaluate author- the authoritarian means his system of thought demands, would likely defect. However lofty the goals, if the means be depraved, the result must reflect that depravity. End quote. Now John Miltimore says, This is why Reed believed it was important to focus on means first and ends second. Unfortunately, as a society, we increasingly take the opposite approach, and we saw ample evidence of this during the pandemic, including with mask mandates. Now, he says, to be sure, this isn't the only explanation for the apparent paradox involving the alleged effectiveness of masks and the alleged ineffectiveness of mask mandates. Any thinker worth his salt will tell you that if you have a paradox, the first thing you should do is check your premises it's more than possible that one of Leonhardt's premises, masks work, mask mandates don't, is wrong. Considering that prior to and during the pandemic, the World Health Organization, the U.S. Surgeon General, and the CDC all expressed doubt about the effectiveness of masks in preventing the spread of respiratory viruses, John Miltmore says, I'm betting on the former being wrong over the latter. But whatever the case may be, it's safe to say that Leonard Reed would have been one of the few voices in the wilderness during the pandemic warning that non-pharmaceutical interventions like lockdowns, masks, etc., would achieve little and would likely cause serious harms. And he would have been right. Reed knew the bloom pre-exists in the seed, and that means the use of force, sooner or later, is likely going to yield rotten fruit. That covers a lot of different ter- little pieces of territory, doesn't it? I mean, that is... It's not just about the masks. It's the whole idea. Well, this idea is so good, we have to use the force of the state to make sure that everybody does it. Or this idea is so good, we have to make sure that force is used to make everybody embrace it. <coughs> Pride Month. <clears throat> anyway, you get the idea. i got a link to the article in the show notes. You can check it out for yourself at the com. Again, this is from John Miltimore from the Foundation for Economic Education. Well worth your time especially if you, have, uh, if you have put masks firmly behind you. Most of us want to think that we have. I want to believe that we have, but it's very clear that there are still forces out there who live to bend us to their will. And masks are a very visible reminder of whether they're succeeding or not. In my opinion, that's the reason why they hang on to it, because it's the one sure way they can know who's actually complying and who isn't. We'll take a quick break. We'll be back right after these messages.
0: This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Hey, welcome to the show. Welcome back to the show, I
1: should say. And a special shout-out here to the Heather Turner team at Patriot Home Mortgage in St. George, Utah. If you are hearing this message anywhere within Utah or Idaho, and if you find yourself in need of a mortgage from a VA loan to a traditional loan, maybe even a reverse mortgage, the Heather Turner team at Patriot Home Mortgage is there to help you. And here's what she brings to the table. Decades of experience, stability, stability and a company with the clout to help you get the loan you need without delay. right? Time is of the essence when it's a hot real estate market. That's what we've been experiencing for quite some time now. Contact Heather at 435-703-4522. You can stop by her office at 619 South Bluff Street in St. George. Heather's NMLS ID is 715386, and Patriot Home Mortgage is an equal housing opportunity lender. I've really become a fan of Thomas L. Knapp. I think he has a very solid take on a lot of the issues that are going on. And I like that he also has that gift, that that Ernest Hemingway-like gift of being able to express powerful ideas in very few words. I'm working on that, but I don't have that gift at this point. I'm trying to develop it. Not there yet. So I'm grateful for people like Thomas who can do this. And the calls for gun control, which always intensify following a high-profile murderous crime like we saw in Uvalde, Texas last week... Have brought out, uh, well, what was the poll I saw yesterday? For instance, this, uh, you know, pollsters have taken polls, the American people have spoken. More or, Americans want gun control. And I'm thinking, you know, the word that's missing from that uh, headline is some Americans want gun control. I want you to hear how Thomas Knapp puts it on car keys and gun control is the title of his article. And he says the clamor for gun control never goes away in American politics. It occasionally simmers down to a dull roar, but every mass shooting recharges the bullhorn batteries. Thus, in the wake of the recent atrocities in Buffalo, New York and Uvalde, Texas, a morning consult political poll says 56 percent of Americans consider it a top priority or an important but lower priority for Congress to pass legislation placing additional restrictions on gun ownership, with only 23% saying that shouldn't be done. So he says, to put it a different way, 56% of Americans resemble the proverbial drunk looking for his car keys under a streetlight rather than a block away where he lost them because the light is better here. Now, he says, let's set aside the stock arguments over whether the right to keep and bear arms is a fundamental human right. It is. Whether that right is guaranteed by the Second Amendment to the U.S. Constitution, it is, etc. And let's focus on the problem of whether, if passed, such legislation would solve the problem of mass shootings. The answer? It wouldn't. First of all, mass shooters are criminals. They don't care about your laws. They operate outside those laws. Including, as you may have noticed, the Gun-Free School Zones Act, sponsored by then-U.S. Senator Joe Biden back in the 1990s. If they want guns, they'll get guns. If they decide to try to use those guns to kill innocents, they won't consult the statutes before acting. Secondly, he says such legislation could not be meaningfully implemented without a bloodbath the likes of which the U.S. hasn't seen since 1865. While estimates vary at the conservative end, uh, pun not intended, more than 100 million Americans own more than 400 million guns. Now, for many, if not most, of those guns and gun owners, the response to gun control legislation will always be, no, you can't have them. If you're not stupid, you won't try to take them. If you do try to take them, go long on the stocks of companies that provide burial, cremation, and funeral services first, because they're going to make bank. If even 1% of those gun owners resist your edict, it's going to get very, very ugly. Now, listen closely to what he says next, because this is the crux of it. You don't have to like it. That's how it is, whether you like it or not. Even if you don't agree that the right to keep and bear arms is a fundamental right. Even if you don't agree that the Second Amendment means what it says. Even if you want it really, really, really badly. What's the solution to mass murder? He says, I don't know. I wish I did. But I do know to look for my car keys where I lost them, instead of wherever the light happens to seem better. I thought that was an excellent Excellent way to put it. And, and I think his message to those who, you know, want to push for this, well, this is what the people want. This is what, they're, this is what the American people are demanding at this time. You know, the David Hoggs of, of American society. We have spoken. You must do as we say. But the answer is no. And this is where I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to make some people uncomfortable, but I'm going to try to say this as, as clearly and as rationally as possible people who insist, well, the government needs to make this happen, the Beto O'Rourke's who are like, well, even if we have to go and round them up, we have to take them away, that's what's got to happen. I don't think you quite comprehend that people like myself who understand their rights, who are not only willing to claim them, use them, and defend them, we long ago made peace with the idea that there are some things for which I am willing to put my life on the line. Now, the corollary to that, and this is the part that will make people uncomfortable, is that means anyone who tries to take that right from me is putting his or her life on the line as well. Or is that a threat? That's not a threat. That is the most fair and even-handed and rational warning that I can give. Because I'm not the one out there wanting to instigate violence. I am the one who is simply telling you, look, don't tread on me. If I were a rattlesnake, that would be my tail bzz, buzzing to warn you. I'm close by, and you're you're starting to infringe on something where you shouldn't be infringing. And it doesn't matter how many people pollsters you know talk to that say, "Well, but this is what we want." It doesn't matter. I know you don't like it. I know that it upsets you, and you think it's unreasonable. And well, you're prizing your rights over children's lives. And actually, I'm prizing your rights as well. Because if it comes down to where, well, just a simple majority of people can say, this is uh, what your rights are and these are what your rights aren't, you don't really have any rights. What you have is the, the mercy of the mob on which you're going to have to throw yourself as to whether or not you're able to live your life in peace. So by taking that stand, yes, I understand. It's, for some people, it's going to sound like that's so radical. Why would you think this? Why would you think that uh, you need guns to protect yourself from your government? like I shared in yesterday's show. I'm not a historian, but I've studied enough of history that I clearly recognize the pattern behind mass murder by government. We call it genocide or democide. And how first in every single instance of democide that you'll find this, let's just go back the last hundred years or so. In every single instance, the first thing that government did before it started to liquidate people by which I mean mass murder them on a large scale, was it disarmed them by law. See, when you put it in those terms, suddenly it's less of, well, you're just a gun worshiper with this obsession over something that's making up for lack of frontal mass elsewhere, <laughs> if you get my drift. And it turns it into, no, actually what I'm talking about is, uh, I'm not going to turn loose of my life preserver, especially as I look around me and I see the seas st- the are getting pretty dang choppy. And of those millions upon millions of guns that have been bought in the last uh, couple of decades, you know, like every time someone has come forward with another, well, we need more gun control, more guns are sold. Look, I'm begging you, Mr. or Ms. Gun Control Advocate. Do you really believe that those people who purchased those weapons, purchased that ammo, gone out and got quality training, so they not only have the implements, but they have the training and the will to use them in defense of their natural rights? Do you really think they're just going to roll over and show you their belly and, here, take it. It scares me, too. I mean, I just, I don't know how you could be more fairly warned of what you are trying to uh, to advocate for. And this is to say nothing of the injustice of punishing people who have never harmed anybody and have no intention of harming anybody but are dang well justified in defending themselves against the predation and uh, the lethal aggression of others. I mean, you're being given a chance to step back from the edge of the abyss. Please take the chance. Please take the opportunity that we are giving you to step back from something that is much bigger and uglier than you would ever want to consider.
0: I'm begging you, seriously, tears in my eyes. Don't go there. This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Hey, welcome back to the show.
1: Want to give a quick shout-out here to lifesavingfood.com. Click on the link I provide in my show notes. It will take you directly to their website. And you will have... Many choices as to uh, various ways and means by which you can, well, secure yourself and your future. Sometimes it's through food storage. Sometimes it's through emergency preparedness. It might be through a way to simply recharge the batteries or the things you use most using solar power. Lots of great tools out there. The time to get them is before you find yourself in an emergency situation. So take advantage of it. Things are tough, but they aren't as tough as they might get, so... Do it now while there's not panic, while there's not heavy demand, while inventories are still high. Prices are as good as they're going to be for the foreseeable future. Sorry, but inflation is uh, is working its awful work among us. But don't delay. Don't put it off until too late. Better to be a little bit or even way too early than to be just a little bit too late. So look, even when things go disastrously wrong, And some things uh, are in the process of it. Some things have gone disastrously wrong. There are other things that are setting themselves up to go disastrously wrong. We can always take comfort in the fact that, well, it's a temporary thing. Now, take, for instance, you know, when when there's a, a storm of some kind, you know, a tornado comes through, a hurricane or something like that. It sucks. It's bad, you know, for the people whose property is damaged or who are displaced or whatever. But it's a temporary thing. And unfortunately, that really hasn't happened, that temporary thing where, okay, but it played out and then life went back to normal. We haven't seen that happen with the COVID response. i got a great article here from Megan Mansell. This is from the Brownstone Institute, asking, when will our sense of security return? She says, when faced with incoming disasters, we undergo personal status checks to evaluate our risk with a risk rather of making it through unscathed. And she uses the example, if a tornado or hurricane hits, we hope for eventual relief by FEMA or the American Red Cross, and we, we figure that into uh, our hoarding of supplies, right? We know our suffering, even with great loss involved, is going to be temporary, relieved by soggy cheese sandwiches and even the most basic of sustenance to mitigate our hunger and rudimentary shelter to give respite and medical aid. But she says, we are coming to expect disjointed, often contradictory responses from our national leadership as any remaining trust quickly wanes. Now, I got to hit the pause button here for just a moment. What she's talking about here is is going to be something that I think a lot of people are going to have their eyes open to here in the very near future. Despite all the preening and all the politicking and the election stump speech making, you know, uh, Politicians and the political machine really don't care about you. You may find a candidate here and there who does a better job of convincing you, no, 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 I'm really on your side. But the machine itself, the machine which they seek to be a part of, it's not there to serve you. It's there to serve its own interests. Sooner you get your mind around that, the less disappointed you're going to be in the future when some politician fails you or refuses to rescue you, or stands by while your kids are... Never mind. Anyways, I'm not going to go there. Now, going back to uh, Megan Mansell's article, she says, when natural disasters hit, we have likely experienced some degree of even the largest magnitude incident. It may be a crisis while in the middle of it, but as time passes, situations don't often get worse than the date of onset. And even if Major were familiar with the steps required to see our way through to the eventual calm of the demolition and rebuilding phase. But she points out pandemic response has shed light on our ill preparedness in ways we previously never considered, such as the lack of a stockpile of formula. Preparedness in these predictable disasters has proven different from total, endless fallout, like those barricaded in their apartments in Shanghai for such a long time. That everyone's just stopped talking about it. The citizens whose cabinets are raided and the echoing onslaught of non-mitigating interventions—interventions rather, such as nonsensical mass quarantines—are transparent. This is about status and control. It's not about pathogenic mitigation. The truly impoverished, <clears throat> who couldn't afford toilet paper, let alone stockpile it during the great toilet paper debacle of 2020, are our nearest representation of what third-world countries experience. On a daily basis. And we may finally have started seeing that first or third world status alike are simply semantics for what can exist next door to one another, even in our most developed of nations. We are now seeing people sharing information about producing insulin during a crisis, or recipes for baby formula that great grandmothers used because we continuously band together to try to make the best of dire situations. She says many among us will stand up to lend a helping hand, even if our efforts are misguided, such as we saw people comply with the erroneous concept of masks acting as source control for aerosols. But can we actually, blame, actually place blame rather on mothers for buying a one-year supply of formula when their shelves are finally replenished? She's got a good point here. This justifiable panic leads to overbuying, stockpiling, and we know that by doing so, that others will go without. But doing so is innate, just as bees store nectar for when the flowers inevitably fail to bloom. When it's your starving infant, nothing outside of your bubble will matter as those hours without drag on. Now, she says, we've seen lockdowns for weeks and months on end. Supply chain disruptions and price gouging (coughs) led to panic buying and the feeling of never having enough, never being truly prepared, which is the unfortunate truth in the matter. She also points out your formula is worthless if your water supply is tampered with and your meat stockpile will quickly be fodder for the flies when California follows through with their threat of power supply sanctions on its residents. As we do our best to pivot and prepare, we're relentlessly blindsided by the next event in the degradation of our contentment, resulting in diminished willpower to keep fighting back. Now, she says predictable surges in supply and demand that eventually diminish aren't what caused this, whether over our PPE shortage or bottom of the barrel, non mitigating respirators or baby formula or fuel or toilet paper or the next item that we panic over. It all keeps pointing back to feckless leadership that excluded citizen input for more than half a century and left us all convinced that they were doing something productive this time, all this time, rather. Now, our old sense of security was false. And now we just keep trying to get it back, trying to convince ourselves that our safety was their focus all along, like dejected lovers who just don't see that he was married to someone else all along. You just paid the bills, sweetheart. Megan Mansell says, but I hope this mistrust and desire for better direction over spending and control does not fade away like all the other big news items tend to. Because in this instance, we're talking about the actual starvation of real and actual babies. In other words, we can't just virtue signal our way out of this one. This isn't the same as paying higher rates for gas. We were there during the Obama years and it sucked, but we survived. She says, we're talking failure to thrive irreparable harm that can result in the death of our citizens and consider the fundamental cause the massive and coercive disruption of social and market functioning for the better part of two years all in the name of virus control Megan Mansell says our leadership keeps keeps proving out how truly unprepared and incompetent they are in vastly different areas and so her question is why aren't we listening as they warn us that it's only getting worse yet we continue to be so comfortably detached. The truth is that our leaders did this to us under the advice of intellectuals who thought they knew better than everyone else. Now we live with the shocking fallout. Now, I don't know, maybe, maybe you think, well, she's, you know, she's sounding the alarm when it doesn't really need to be sounded, or maybe she's overstating this or overblowing the, the magnitude of, of whatever the challenges that we face. I'll admit there's a part of me that wants to believe that too, but I don't think she's wrong. And when she talks about that, that comfortable sense of detachment that we have, well, yeah, it's bad and it could get bad and it looks like it might even get a little bit worse. I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm really not trying to bring the doom here. I'm just trying to point out what we're facing is unlike anything that I believe any of us have faced in our lifetimes. And the buffet of consequences that we are pulling up to, to sit down to, um, it's it's bigger than I think most any of us realize. Now, I hope I'm wrong. I really do. I hope sincerely that a year from now, you can reach out to me and say, Brian, (laughs) or should I say Chicken Little, look how wrong you were on this. But I suspect we're going to know a whole lot more about this a year from now. Maybe it won't even take that long before the reality sets in of what we're up against. Now, that doesn't mean that all is lost. It just means that uh, we can't get caught in that trap of uh, denial where it's like, well, okay, yeah, it could get bad. And, you know, if gas prices go above 5 bucks a gallon or if they go to $10 a gallon, it's going to suck. But, you know, somehow we'll make do. I have no doubt we will make do. But my question for you is, what are you doing right now to improve your situation for you and your family and your neighbors Time is
0: getting short to prepare for this. So let's not dilly-dally. This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Show. All right, welcome back to the show.
1: I want to give a shout-out here to... Dixie Chiropractic. That is Dr. Ward Wagner. And I would invite you to check out his website. I actually have a link in my show notes. You can go to dixiechiro.com, click on it. And if you are someone who suffers from neuropathy, you might want to check out their $99 CalMare treatment plus massage special that they're offering. This is, this is something that he's asked me to communicate to my listeners. So, again, if you're dealing with neuropathy, that's something you could look at. If you have bulging, herniated discs, Here's a $99 intro special, two treatments, plus massage. That's a great deal. If you've had a car accident and you've been suffering injuries from a car accident, talk to Dr. Wagner and his staff, because in many cases you can be helped with no out-of-pocket expenses. In fact, talk to your auto insurance provider, and you'll find that uh, that's something that is thoughtfully provided within your auto insurance. Go to DixieChiro.com. Again, that's DixieCyro.com. I know Memorial Day has come and gone, and uh, I, I did get the chance to go out and put some flowers on my dad's grave and my grandparents' graves, and, um, you know, I, I'm not trying to, to make this sound like, on oh, it was just this wonderful, morbid holiday. It was really rainy and windy and just kind of gloomy, but I see the cemetery so much differently than I used to, and it probably it's because... As a kid, you know, we would go out there and I'd just basically sit there bored out of my skull while my parents talked to all the other family and friends and acquaintances they knew who were likewise out there, you know, putting flowers on the graves of loved ones. But I I found an article last week. In fact, last week I had the chance to interview the author of this article, Grace by Dalek, which reminds us that uh, cemeteries can teach us something about uh, the importance of of religion. In fact, the the, the sub headline on her article is for those willing to listen. The dead whisper of something that grows beyond this life. So, at the risk of you know people who are just I'm really averse to any mention of cemeteries or funerals or anything like that. I'd like you to hear what she has to say, and consider what we can gain by visiting a cemetery. Grace Bidalic says, I love cemeteries. I always have. In the past, when my friends questioned my interest, I struggled to articulate exactly why. But she says, after years of observing our culture, she says, it's helped me to understand my fascination. The world is disorienting, bewildering, heavy, small. Cemeteries are not. She says, they're a respite from worldly confusion and a comforting acknowledgement of natural order. Now, this is what she means. We're born and we die. We, we return to that from which we were made. To him who made us, nothing can arrest the cycle. And the headstones also reveal a distilled list of things important to, to those who passed. Family, country. They reveal what roles imbued their lives with purpose. Beloved father, mother, sister, brother, husband, wife, soldier, friend. In a world of unnecessary superlatives, these were all that mattered. And in this way, the dead speak. Now, outside of the cemetery walls, she says, young people balk at these titles. Culture is permeated with a simultaneous disdain for these designations and the hypocritical desire to define ourselves by anything else. Our sexual orientation, relationships, careers, education. We receive societal approval from parents and on social media for shirking roles driven by duty or morality. Things like sexual freedom without consequence. The ability to define yourself on your own terms, more educational opportunities than ever, fewer behavioral problems, like drinking, school fights, sex and smoking. Yeah, theoretically young people should be the happiest they've ever been. Yet this couldn't be further from the truth. Grace Bidalek points out, a slew of damning articles from the New York Times and the Atlantic document the cultural train the cultural trend rather noticeable to even a passing observer. American adolescence is changing for the worse. Teens are deeply depressed. In fact, according to the CDC, we're witnessing the highest level of teenage sadness ever recorded. From 2009 to 2021, American high schoolers who report feeling persistent feelings of sadness or hopelessness rose steeply from 26% to 44%. In 2018, suicide was the second leading cause of death among 10 to 24-year-olds. Oof, that has not improved either with uh, with the last couple of years. Now, Grace Bidalic asks, how could this be? Even our atmosphere of unconditional acceptance, which is lauded by the mainstream media, isn't making kids any happier, especially those who identify as LGBTQ. Nearly half of LGBTQ teens reported contemplating suicide during the pandemic, compared with 14% of heterosexual young people their age. Now, the papers cite reasons for the crisis, including increased social media use or less sleep and exercise, the 24-7 news cycle, the earlier onset of puberty, loneliness, modern parenting strategies, and the pandemic. And Grace Bidalic says, while these factors play a role, these lists make a glaring omission. But the dead have their answer. Their gravestones are littered with crosses and stars of David and inscriptions like Child of God, religious signifiers that point toward a different kind of identity. You see where she's going here? All the stuff that we put our attention on, all the stuff we think that matters, but you visit a graveyard and see what is put on people's headstones, and you will see it distilled down to what really mattered. What were the real defining virtues or defining titles Of this person's life. I think that's a pretty powerful reminder. Now she says as teen depression has gone up, church and synagogue attendance has gone down. According to a Gallup poll released in March of twenty twenty, only forty seven percent of US citizens belonged to a house of worship, down more than twenty points from the turn of the century. The year twenty twenty was the first time that number dipped below fifty percent since Gallup began asking the question eighty years prior. Additionally, Gallup found membership correlates with age, with the oldest Americans much more likely to be members than young adults. And this drop off was particularly pronounced for millennials and Generation Z, who are 30% less likely to attend religious services than Americans born before 1946. For baby boomers and Generation X, these numbers are only 8 and 16 points, respectively. What does it cost us when we lose our religion? Grace by Dalex is our health, according to researchers at the Mayo Clinic. Most studies have shown that religious involvement and spirituality are associated with better health outcomes, including greater longevity, coping skills, and quality of life, even during terminal illness, and less anxiety, depression, and suicide. Dr. Harold Koenig of Duke University concludes that though religion focuses on God or an external locus of control, Religious people have a strong sense of internal control. As people pray and ask God for guidance, he said in an interview with Forbes, they feel a sense of control over their own situation, helping them cope with depression and anxiety. Now, she says religion also plays a major role in the formation of community and social cohesion. Those epitaphs, mother and sister, brother and son, father and friend, are based on the traditional Judeo-Christian family structure and central to how one perceives the world and his role in it. These roles, based on duty to others, have proven over centuries to be more enduring than any we might choose for ourselves. They make us more altruistic, empathetic, empathetic rather, and socially responsible. These communities and their boundaries promote liberty and sustain civil society. In the absence of the God of the Bible, and these religious institutions built around him, more malicious, fallible things, relationships, jobs, presidential candidates will rise to take his place. And listen to this next line. There is no such thing as true autonomy. Something will be the God of our hearts. Grace Dalek concludes by saying, and then there's something else, something in the feeling of standing in front of a headstone with a a cross or a star of David chiseled above the name and role there's a miraculous side effect of faith, inexplicable to those without it and paramount to those who have it. When communities and relationships fail us and when we fail ourselves, we have hope in spite of circumstance. So she says, for those willing to listen, the dead whisper of something that grows beyond this life, death is just a gardener. I suspect not everybody is going to get or appreciate what uh, what she's trying to say here, but... And, and, and there's, you know, Grace is a young person. She's she's a writer, performer, uh, and a, an administrator in the uh, Upper West Side of New York City. I'm older, but I get what she's saying. This is, uh, I guess it's one of those things, the older you get, the more you start to really think about what is life really all about, right? That's some deep philosophical contemplation. But if you haven't visited a cemetery and just pondered all those different headstones, all those different stories represented by the names and the dates and some of those titles that you'll find on those headstones. It can definitely bring a little bit of clarity as to uh, the trajectory of your own life and what you're doing with the time that has been allotted to you. And I'm suggesting
0: that's actually a very healthy thing to do. This is The Brian Hyde Show.
1: This is the place where people gather to revel in wrong think. Not so much because it's just, you know, the latest hip, antisocial trend. Hey, yeah, we're all fashionable. It's more a matter of survival. Like, seriously, if you want to stay tethered to reality, you have got to be capable of questioning the narrative. So I appreciate you showing up. I'll try to make it worth your while. I've got some great stuff to share today. In fact, I want to dive right into the topic of why is it people get so angry when they confront a truth that they're not quite ready to acknowledge. Now, you probably have experienced this. If you have ever questioned the narrative, even in a mild way, even if you're just like, well, I'm not too sure about that. And whatever that narrative may be, you know, vaccinations are saving lives and preventing COVID from spreading. Yeah, I'm not too sure about that. People will not just, well, who do you think you are? They'll flip out on you. And so... You have to have fairly thick skin. If you're going to be a truth seeker, if you're going to be a truth speaker, you got to learn to not take it personal because people will get really upset. And it's tempting to just dismiss it. Well, of course they get upset. They're stupid and they're evil and I'm not, you know. Really, you can't do that. Okay, you got to remember these are God's children too. These are people, that you, they're human beings just like you and me. We're all at some place in that journey out of the swamp of disinformation. And so you got to be patient. I've got a great article here from Caitlin Johnstone. It's titled, People Who Defend Empire Narratives Are Really Just Defending Their Worldview From Destruction. So specifically, she's going to talk about, you know, when you question the, the U.S. State Department or government officials or whatever the, the geopolitical narrative of the U.S. government happens to be. Yeah, you're going to catch a lot of flack, and she does. She's constantly accused of being, you know, one of Putin's puppets, you know, out there disseminating disinformation on behalf of Mother Russia. Nonetheless, she's right about this. And it can be applied to so many different issues. Caitlin Johnstone says, if you publicly challenge the official narratives of the Western political or media class about any major issue, you probably notice that people can get pretty upset about it. Like actually upset, not mildly annoyed like you might get at someone who is saying something that is obviously false and stupid, but burning hot emotional like you'd get if you heard someone insulting your loved one or like someone insulting you personally. And she says that's the most surprising thing. When you first start speaking about this stuff, not that people don't believe you or don't agree with you. That's to be expected when every screen in their lives is telling them one thing and you're telling them something else but that people actually get deeply emotionally invested in it. And she says that's your first clue that there's something else going on beneath the surface apart from what you're being presented with. You're not just arguing about Ukraine or China or Syria or whatever. You're touching on a psychological third rail that's being ferociously protected. Now, she says many of the people you run into online or in person who defend imperial narratives from your criticisms aren't doing so because they believe the U.S. centralized empire is awesome and great. They're doing so because it's much more comfortable than confronting the possibility that their entire worldview is made of lies. Now, I want to hit pause here for just a second. We've all been in the situation where we've been confronted with information or truth. Can I say that word? Is that, that's an offensive word apparently to some people. Oh, that's a rude and condescending word, truth. Who do you think you are to say that there's such a thing as truth? But we've all encountered truths that we realized at some point, oh my gosh, that really is the truth. And it forced us to reevaluate things that we previously had held to be the truth. And it was only in light of that additional knowledge, that additional light that we were able to realize, ah, there was, there's something I was missing here. So this is part of life, and it is uncomfortable. And I think it's a measure of your maturity as a human being, whether or not you are capable of encountering truth that is uncomfortable without getting upset and without, uh, you know, getting defensive and having to puff up and do the, you know, the imitation of a gorilla to dominate other people and prevent them from, you know, from invading your moral or your mental universe, rather. Now, Caitlin Johnstone in her article says there's a great comic by The Oatmeal. I don't know if you've seen this cartoon, but it's wonderful stuff, which explains the psychological defense mechanisms humans have in place to protect their worldview from information that could destabilize it. Because our tendency to select for cognitive ease over cognitive challenge in order to conserve mental energy, she says we tend to be heavily biased against consciously helping new worldview disrupting information get past those psychological defense mechanisms. And it doesn't get more worldview disrupting than questioning mainstream consensus reality. Because on the other side of that investigation is the realization that pretty much everything you've been trained to believe about your society, your nation, your government, and your world is a lie. This is often what people are really pushing back against when they get upset at someone who's being critical of official empire narratives. It's not actually super important to them that everybody believe the correct things about their government or someone else's government, but it's super important to them that the world as they know it not come to a crashing halt. Because that's what it is as far as their experience and perception is concerned. A lucid seeing that their worldview is based on lies would feel like the end of their world, because in their experience it would be the end of the world they know. Now again, I'm going to step back for a minute from her commentary. Does that not make you have just a little bit more compassion for them? And again, I say this from the understanding. I've been there. I've recognized it in my own life. And I recognize the times when I reacted negatively because someone pointed out something that was going to bring my understanding to that point to a crashing halt. Now, I hope I'm I hope I've grown to where I can, you know, start to to embrace it and roll with it. And, And here's the real thing. It does take courage when you encounter new truth. And you adapt it and bring it into your life and you change your thinking. There's a remarkable amount of growth that takes place, but it's not easy, so we won't pretend that it is. Caitlin Johnstone puts it this way, having your entire understanding of the world and how it works torn asunder, it's a kind of death because it's the end of your secure knowing of what's real. In a sense, it's the end of you, too. It's the end of the person you were. Now, it's all illusory, of course, but that's the way it feels, and if you ask someone to consider the possibility that they're being lied to in some way about Ukraine, for example, you're not just asking them to unravel one small belief about one specific conflict. You're asking them to ask questions that open up other questions, the answers to which could very easily end up unraveling their entire understanding of their whole world. She says, Think about it. If you consider the possibility that the news media and their government are lying about Ukraine, then you must necessarily consider the possibility that they're lying about other things, too. And if they're lying about all that, it would mean that you were taught lies in school, too. And if you've been consuming lies from the very beginning of your education, that means your entire understanding of how everything works is built on lies, which means your political ideology and many opinions you hold probably are, too. Now, if you really think about what this kind of confrontation means for the individual, is it any wonder that people fight tooth and claw against the suggestion that they should even begin to enter that investigative rabbit hole? Caitlin Johnstone says, I mean, think about how it was for you. She says, if you're reading this, the odds are you went through the ordeal of worldview dissolution yourself at some point. Can you honestly say it was easy or entirely pleasant? Her point is this is not easy to do. You can cast aside the comforts of knowledge and understanding, and then after you've gone through that whole ordeal, you're still not out of the woods, because until you've gotten your bearings, you can find yourself in a kind of epistemological no-man's land where anything might be true. In that space, people can get mixed up and latch on to new worldviews that are no more truth-based than the one they abandon, like QAnon or fuzz-brain notions about Jews ruling the world. She says it's not until you pass through the process of abandoning all the falsehoods and the process of learning what's really true that you start to regain any semblance of stability. And if you think that's an easy thing to do, it's probably because you haven't gone through it yourself. Can you really blame people for intuitively wanting to push away from that? So her point is simply this. Have patience if people don't see what you see. They're just afraid. They're not there yet. An acorn is not a defective oak tree. An egg is not a defective chicken. We're all waking up together and some of us have had to be the first to lead the charge out of the darkness and into the light. This is just what it looks like as life on this planet moves towards increased levels of complexity and consciousness. I agree with her on this. And I think you not only need to be gentle with the people around you who are starting to open their eyes, but you need to be gentle with yourself too. Right, don't beat yourself up. How could I be so stupid? How could I have been such a dupe to believe the things that I once believed? Just accept this is part of life. This is the learning process. And bumping into the limits of your mental universe is always uncomfortable. So treat other people the way you would want to be treated. Plant the seed, speak the truth with love, walk away, let it germinate, let them come to the truth on their own terms.
0: This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Hey, welcome back to the show.
1: All right, I have something here that uh, I think is, is timely. Just because there's a lot of unhappiness out there. And, and I want you to know, despite all the, the heavy stuff I may be talking about on a given day, my goal is never to leave you feeling like, oh, boy, we're, we're doomed. We're all doomed. The horsemen of the apocalypse are all riding through the streets just, you know, having their way with us. This is so bad. I have found, and maybe you've noticed this too, humor is such a powerful tool in helping us to keep things in perspective. I think back to many years ago when my dad was dying of cancer and you know this is going to sound irreverent to some people you're going to think how could you possibly joke at a time like this but for for my older sister and i um it was actually kind of a positive time i think that's when we really became very good friends that's when we became close and it was humor that really helped us to keep our 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 sanity okay i'm not i'm not trying to milk sympathy here or anything but if you've watched somebody die over the course of months and weeks from cancer, it's an ugly thing, and it just grinds on you. It just goes on and on. It's very hard to feel hopeful as you watch someone you love basically shrivel away into nothing. And so we had our own little sense of black humor. Since since our troubles really began in earnest around Christmas time, you know, we dubbed it the year the Christmas tree wouldn't stand, and that was that was kind of a it's still a standing joke for us. You know, anytime something. Uh, you know, bad is happening or we hear about some trial with one another, that's the first thing we ask, how's your Christmas tree? Is it it leaning or is it standing straight? (laughs) Because, we know, if it's the year the Christmas tree doesn't stand, you're in for some trouble. Well, I've got a great article here from Annie Holmquist from intellectualtakeout.org. Now, this is titled, Laughter, the Bane of Tyrants. But I want you to consider the role of humor in just keeping a good even keel. She says the Babylon Bee isn't one of my regularly visited websites, but I landed on its front page the other morning and started scrolling through the headlines. Pretty soon a snicker escaped my lips and then a giggle and then several bursts of downright hearty laughter, which a co-worker was soon sharing after I had him read a choice headline. Now she says I went back to my work feeling refreshed and content. It felt good to laugh, to look at the troubles our world faces through the funny side of the lens for once. Now, she says that I would find such laughter from a conservative satire site like the Babylon Bee would likely come as a surprise to many of our ruling elites. For the past couple of decades, popular opinion has placed good political humor solely in the hands on those on the left side of the political spectrum. Professors Matt Sienkiewicz and Nick Marks told Politico in a recent interview. Resting on their laurels, however, isn't doing liberal humorists any good. In fact, conservatives now appear to have the humor market cornered, partly due to the fact that their liberal counterparts are no longer funny. This lack of humor from the left seems to stem from cancel culture and a fear of being offensive in even the most minute ways. Instead of laughing at something funny, liberals engage in virtue signaling, telling people that there's a moral problem or maybe even a political problem with finding something funny. Now, when liberals do this, they are ceding ideological territory in the culture wars to the right. That's according to Professor Marx noting that comedy is a binding agent that unifies people. Furthermore, humor has the power to attract younger audiences. If it's perceived that you are going to have more fun and be less subject to scrutiny about laughing at the correct things on the right side than on the left, well, which party do you want to attend if you're not deeply ideological? That's a good point. Now, Marx and Sienkiewicz are themselves liberals who spent the last three years studying the issue of conservative humor. But they could have spared themselves some trouble pondering its rise, for British satirist Malcolm Muggeridge explored the same issue in his book, Confessions of a 20th Century Pilgrim. Muggeridge points out that Christians, just like today's traditionalist conservatives, studied by Marx and Sinkiewicz, are often believed to be humorless, the assumption being that a sense of humor and the Christian faith are incompatible. But such an assumption is totally mistaken. Here's what Muggeridge said, quote, It is the millionaires and pornographers and megalomaniacs and doctrinaire politicians and sociologists and abortionists, people of that stamp, who wrap themselves in solemnity and wince at the sound of laughter. That idiot laughter, a passion hateful to our purpose, Shakespeare's King John says, speaking on behalf of all tyrants everywhere and at all times anointed and ideological. Now Annie Holmquist asks, why is laughter the bane of tyrants? because tyrants seek to enslave people, but laughter helps an individual break free from such enslavement. Laughter frees us physically by stimulating body organs, relieving stress and aiding relaxation, according to the Mayo Clinic. It also boosts our immune systems and acts as a painkiller. It frees us emotionally by lightening our moods and enabling us to form connections with others. And it is through such community that we gain further freedom by the realization that we're not alone in our ideas and practices. And in a sense, it also frees us mentally, for it allows us to get into the minds of the ruling elites, for as Mugridge wrote in a different essay, when the governed laugh, the governors cannot have but an, cannot but have an uneasy feeling that they may well be laughing at them. So do you believe in freedom and want to spread it around? Then laugh. Look for the funny side of even the most mundane things in life. And don't just keep the humor to yourself either. Share the funny parts of your day with your family. Pass along a relevant and amusing theme, meme, rather, on social media. Laugh at a co-worker's joke. Who knows? The joy you spread may be just the thing to cut through the gloom that tyrants use to keep us enslaved. I think this is such good advice. And, and I'll grant you, the gravity of some of the stuff that's shaping up around us, it's heavy. There's times where I'm just like, Ugh, <laughs> I just need a break. And I'm so grateful for websites like the Babylon Bee and, and commentators like J.P. Sears who can sit there and make fun and do it in a fun way. And here's the best part of all. That kind of satire is very, very difficult to attack because humor is one of those few ways that you can speak truths that uh, still, uh, well, basically if you approach them directly, people would think it's an attack. It's funny, the other day I mentioned, you know, Ricky Gervais is, is under a lot of uh, condemnation right now from the LGBT community because of his humor. And yet he's not attacking them. He's very supportive of trans rights and so forth. He really is, you know, on their side. But he's calling out the cancel culture because the cancel culture is turning its eyes on him because he dares to laugh and to find humor. In something that they insist everybody take oh so seriously. I watched his stand-up special the other night, and you know I, I got to tell, you, it's there's some there's some pretty vulgar humor. I would not uh, I would not recommend it for people who are uh, particularly uh, morally upright, or I would not recommend it with kids in the room. But his take on cancel culture and his take on being able just to speak the truth, was so on target. And there were parts of his, his monologue and parts of, of what he was saying in his presentation that as, as a religious person, I probably should have or could have taken offense had I chosen to. I chose not to. See, because I'm not living my life looking for a reason to be offended. I'm not looking for some reason to uh, furrow my brow and start wagging my finger at people. How dare you think that? No fun allowed, you. And it felt good to laugh. Now, some people would say, well, that's just you exercising your privilege there. (laughs) You don't have to find this stuff serious because you're just a white heterosexual male and so forth. Get off your high horse. Seriously. If you can't find some humor in life and and the fact that, look, amidst the tragedy and life is going to have tragedy of some way, shape or form, it's going to be there. You're leading a pretty miserable existence. Stop trying to drag everybody else down. See if you can find some humor. By the way, I I don't recommend you know uh, you know go become a police officer, go uh, ride on an EMT crew, but if you want to find some of the best examples of people who know how to use humor to to get them through situations where you know they're dealing with humanity at its absolute worst, they um they definitely have <laughs> a developed sense of humor that helps them to cope. I don't fault them one bit. Soldiers, likewise. And some people will say, well, it's not right to laugh at inappropriate things, but I'm just going to put it out there. If you can still laugh, you still have some control over the situation. Take that as
0: you will, but uh, find an opportunity to laugh. This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is the Brian Hyde Show. And we are back. Thanks to
1: sewing dot com for being one of the sponsors of my show. This is a family-owned business that's been in operation since 1984, right there on Bluff Street in St. George, Utah. Now they serve more than just the St. George, Utah area. I mean, if you're anywhere within a couple hundred miles. Of Sewing and Quilting Center. It would be worth your time to get in the car, drive there, and see what they have to offer. From entry-level sewing machines up to the very high-end, top-of-the-line, long-arm quilting machines. They not only sell the machines, they service them. Even if you didn't buy your machine from them, they can fix whatever sewing machine or quilting machine you have. And the best part is they will train you. They'll teach you how to use the machine you have. They offer free classes. They have all the supplies This is about as close to a one-stop shop as you're going to find. Sewingandquiltingcenter.com. Check them out. And above all, when you go to to purchase something from them, tell them as you you hand them your card or as you hand them the cash that you heard about it on this show. Well, if you aren't familiar with the story of Sophie Scholl, this is a story that's worth knowing. Jacob Hornberger has... uh, has done a lot to recount the story of the White Rose Society and Sophie Scholl. And I have an essay that I'm including in today's show notes about whether the White Rose was right or wrong on patriotism. He says, One of the most dramatic movie scenes I've ever watched is the courtroom segment in Sophie Scholl, The Final Days. This is a 2005 German movie with English subtitles that he says I cannot recommend too highly. The movie revolves around Hans and Sophie Scholl, a brother and sister who were two of the principal members of a German organization called the White Rose. Now, he says, I first wrote about the White Rose in 1996 in an article entitled The White Rose, A Lesson in Dissent, which was later published in an anthology on the Holocaust for high school students. The White Rose is one of the most remarkable stories of courage I have ever encountered. The fact that the organization was composed primarily of college students, makes it even more amazing. In fact, he says, One summer I took my bicycle to Germany where I cycled around Munich. My first stop was the University of Munich where the White Rose students were attending. A courtyard at that university is composed of brick inlays that have excerpts from the pamphlets that the students were secretly, surreptitiously, and anonymously distributing to the people of Germany. Why the secrecy and anonymity? Well, two reasons. First, this was 1943, the height of World War II when German troops were fighting on two fronts, the Western Front against the British and Americans and the Eastern Front against the Soviet Communists, America's wartime partner and ally who would, after the war, be converted to America's and West Germany's enemy. Second, the pamphlets exhorted the German people to oppose their government and its war machine and even called on them to sabotage armament plants and war industries. Now, that was a dangerous thing to do something that Hitler and his national security establishment would not look kindly upon, especially since the nation was at war and massive numbers of German troops were dying or getting injured or captured on the battlefield every day. Not to mention the German civilians who were suffering under continuous Allied bombing raids. Despite their youth, the Scholl siblings, both of whom were Christians, and other members of the White Rose, were well aware of the risks they were taking with their dissent. That's why their publication and distribution of the pamphlets were conducted in the utmost secrecy. One day, Sophie made a gigantic mistake. Thinking that no one was around in the early morning at the University of Munich, she dumped a stack of white rose pamphlets from an upper story into a university courtyard for students to pick up and read once they arrived at school that day. A janitor saw her do it, locked the doors, and called the Gestapo. He considered himself a patriot, and the government considered him a patriot because he was fulfilling the government's request to support, to report, rather, on suspicious activity. Sophie and Hans, along with their best friend Christoph Probst, were immediately put on trial before the People's Court, which was a special tribunal system that Hitler had set up to try terrorism and treason cases that existed independently of Germany's regular judicial system. Hitler had established this special tribunal system as part of his war on terrorism after the terrorist attack on the Reichstag. Angry that the regular courts had acquitted some of the suspected terrorists in the Reichstag attack, Hitler wanted to make sure that suspected terrorists were never again released and were instead convicted and punished. The presiding judge for the White Rose Tribunal was Roland Friesler, who was the overall head of the People's Court. Upon the arrest of Scholl's siblings, Hitler sent him from Berlin to Munich to preside over the White Rose trial. Hitler was fully aware that this was the first time the dissent had broken out publicly over his policies. And he wanted to send a message to the rest of Germany. Don't even think about opposing what your government is doing. We are at war. Support the troops. Not surprisingly, the trial was held in secret. National security was at stake. When Hans and Sophie's mother tried to enter the courtroom, she was barred. The court guard told her she should have raised her children better. As an aside, notice how the Scholl sibling's defense attorney does nothing to defend them at the trial. He's too scared, and he undoubtedly knew that the verdict was preordained anyway. His silence and inaction provides us with a keen insight into why our American ancestors included the right to assistance of counsel in the Bill of Rights. They understood that the U.S. government was as capable of denying people critically important procedural rights as any other regime. And they wanted to make it clear that to do so here in the United States would be illegal under our form of government. Now, the White Rose trial raises important issues regarding patriotism and war. Issues that American citizens themselves have been grappling with during the past 25 years of continuous warfare in Iraq, Syria, Yemen, Pakistan, Somalia, and other parts of the Middle East and Afghanistan. Friesler's position was clear in times of war. It is the duty of the citizen to support the troops and support his government. The time for debate and discussion about whether the country should be at war is over. Once the government goes to war, the nation has to come together to win the war. It's our team against their team. Citizens who criticize the war effort and refuse to support the troops are contributing to their country's defeat. They are the antithesis of pa- of patriots. They are traitors to their country. Now, in the courtroom scene, you will see that Friesler is genuinely angry and outraged over what the Scholl siblings have done. In his mind, Hans and Sophie are clearly traitors and must be punished accordingly. It's not difficult to see that he genuinely believes what he is saying. The Scholl siblings had a different concept of patriotism. For them, it is the duty of the citizen to make an independent appraisal of their own government and the reasons it is waging war. If the citizen concludes that his government is in the wrong, it is incumbent on him to oppose the government to stop supporting the troops and to call on others to do the same. For the Scholl siblings, that's what patriotism is all about. Not a devoted allegiance to the government and its war machine, including during time of war, but rather a willingness to stand against the government and its war machine when it is in the wrong. For them, this was the way to lead Germany out of the darkness of tyranny and into the light of freedom. Watching the courtroom scene, <clears throat> one is tempted to sympathize with the Scholl siblings. However, the fact is that Friesler's concept of patriotism, not that of the White Rose, has been the widely accepted one throughout most of history. Throughout the 20th century and into the 21st century, governments in countries all across the globe have spied upon, jailed, ruined, and even killed citizens who've refused to get on their government's war bandwagon or who have chosen not to support the troops and governments have done those things with the full support of much of the citizenry. Now, Jacob Hornberger says, what position would Americans, including high school and college students living today, have taken if they were German citizens in the midst of world war two, would they have supported Friesler, the people's court and the standard view on patriotism, or would they have supported the white rose and Hans and Sophie Scholl's concept of patriotism? What would Americans do if they found themselves in a similar situation Today, Now, in the article, he says, if you want to see part of the courtroom scene in Sophie Scholl, The Final Days, he says, uh, click on the link he provides and go to eight minutes, 30 seconds in. But he says, I would highly recommend watching the entire movie. I would second that recommendation. It's very well done. And what makes it such a powerful movie is that the vast majority of the dialogue in that movie was taken from the records kept by the Nazi interrogators themselves. We know word for word what was said between the investigators and Hans and Sophie Scholl. So so much of what was said is in their own words, their own tongue. And it's a truly powerful story. And, of course, at the time, you know, the vast majority of German citizens looked at them. Well, they are traitors and they died this horrible, you know, traitorous death. They were uh, decapitated by guillotine. And it wasn't until after the war, it wasn't until after people were able to come to grips with the truth of what had been done to them and to their country, that they recognized that Hans and Sophie Scholl and Christoph Probst and other members of the White Rose, boy, there was a lot of people that were punished, many executed, others imprisoned. They were the heroes. They were the example of the very best citizens that Germany had during those dark days. So I guess the lesson here I'm asking you to consider is that sometimes the patriotic thing to do is the exact opposite of what everybody else seems to be doing. Now does that mean that you're going to be free from criticism? Absolutely not. You will probably face extreme criticism. You might even face, you know the loss of liberty, loss of reputation. You might even face the loss of your life, depending on, you know how seriously the officials are at trying to suppress that dissent. How well do you know your heart? and your conscience? And to what extent are you willing to go to be at peace with your conscience? Watch the movie Sophie Scholl, The Final Days, and I think you'll find some
0: inspiration. This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Once again, thanks for joining
1: us today. Hey, if you haven't subscribed to my newsletter, my newsletter, my show notes, sorry, same thing. (laughs) I do it on a daily basis. Just uh, visit uh, my website, thebrianhydeshow.com. Click on the show notes down at the bottom of the page. You'll see a subscribe button. Give me your email and I will hang on to it. I won't share it or sell it to anybody but I will drop a copy of the show notes in your inbox each day that I do the program. I want to give a shout-out here to HSLammo.com, and I hope that if you are in the market for some ammunition, high-quality, new, or remanufactured ammo, just click on the link I provide for HSLammo.com. Take a look at what they have. I think you'll find their prices are fair, their quality is there, and uh, ammo is always a good thing to have. When someone says, you know, how much ammo is enough ammo? How much is too much? The answer is you can never have too much. What you don't need will make a wonderful store of value because someone will be willing to pay, sometimes dearly, for it in times where it's difficult to get your hands on. So, again, you know, it's a very good barterable good. It's also a great way to turn your money into skill. And skill at arms is a great thing to have. HSLammo.com Okay, I'm going to push a little bit in this last segment here. I I don't mean to make you uncomfortable, but I've seen a video in the last week that just really, really had me pondering. What on earth is going on? Could you stand by as another person is abused or victimized? I'm not talking about uh, even, you know, the, the police victimizing or abusing somebody. I've, I've seen plenty of instances where people just, oh, no, I can't do anything. And, you know, with good reason, you, the full force of the state is going to land on you if you so much as lift a finger to try to help someone in that circumstance. But what if it's just your average uh, run-of-the-mill, non-uniformed criminal that's uh, that's going after somebody? The video I saw was on the New York subway, and it was a, a guy just, Strutting around this uh, this subway car and victimizing, it looked like an Asian woman. Um, she's trying her best to ignore him, but everybody just averts their eyes. I mean, he's he's got her by the hair, and, and and he's not beating on her, but he's clearly just intimidating her, preventing her from moving away from him. And it's just it's it's such a sickening thing to to watch. And if that's a test of character, you know, can you stand by while someone else is abused or victimized? I'm going to say, generally, this is a test we seem to be flunking as a society. Breeson Sack asks, where are all the men? And says, on May 28th, Sky News Australia posted a video titled, New York Bearing Signs of Societal Decay. The video shows a man, who seems as if he's on drugs, entering a train car and sitting next to a young woman. He then touches her without consent, grabs her, drags her around a bit, and generally is an extremely unpleasant nuisance. He eventually leaves leaves her alone and proceeds to try to kick out one of the windows. During the video, the young woman is seen looking at other passengers with obvious worry in her eyes, begging somebody to please help me. Nobody tries to help her. And the news anchor for this story asks the question, where are the men? Well, the author here says, if I had to guess they were standing in their place, checking their male privilege, toning down the toxic masculinity, and coping with how their time's up... Perhaps the men wanted a demonstration of how women are actually the stronger sex. Perhaps the threat level just didn't seem that high to them. New York, of course, has a duty to retreat, after all. Besides, New York has been in the habit of arresting those who defend themselves. But here's the thing. Most likely, the men who were on that train did not know or did not care about this woman, rather. They didn't know her. They weren't likely ever to get to know her. How could it be worth it for them to possibly be killed or maimed, because you don't know if this guy was armed, if he had a knife or something, for the sake of someone who may as well not exist to them? Then again, let's give these men the benefit of the doubt. Maybe they did want to help this woman. Watching the video, you might notice something about the aggressor. He's black. My guess is that none of the men watching wanted to become the next George Zimmerman. We all saw the emotional toll Kyle Rittenhouse suffered for defending himself. Yes, the media vilified him for having an emotional testimony. But the anchor refers to the men on the train as cowards. But the author says, I think that might be a bit unfair. Quite simply, Western society does not trust people who defend themselves or others. In 2016, a 17-year-old Danish girl was arrested for defending herself with pepper spray from a would-be rapist. In 2020, a Virginia store clerk was arrested for defending his store from robbers. Even an elderly U.K. pensioner was arrested for stabbing a burglar to death. It's entirely possible that those men had such cases in mind. Now, in the armed self-defense community, there's a common phrase, better to be judged by 12 than carried by 6. And in most cases, this is true. It is better to be alive to face trial than to be dead. But is it better to be condemned by society than to let a crime happen to another person? How difficult is it to imagine anyone who may have intervened being decried as racist? And that's really the crux of it. If you lifted a finger to help this young woman, guaranteed there'd be people, oh, that's just a racist thing, you just attacked him because he was black. Reason Jax says, uh, I can see the headlines maligning any actions being taken as racially motivated or entirely aggressive. Let's not forget about the videos posted without context of the Covington kids or how a police officer named Darren Wilson was believed to have maliciously killed an unarmed teenager. That would be Michael Brown back in uh, Ferguson, Missouri. Perhaps the media would issue corrections for the mistakes made in the reports, but no doubt the names, faces and workplaces of those involved would have already been exposed. So... Yeah, they are at risk. Now, this news anchor was definitely right about one thing. Society is declining. The signs are legion and everywhere, but it's not necessary to get into that here. He says, I just want to make the case that cowardice may not have been the only reason that no men acted that day, especially considering the society that fostered these men. Now, look, I'm not suggesting that uh, this is time for everybody to get their Bernie gets on. You know, remember Bernie? He was the guy back in the 1980s when, when there was a lot of crime in New York, particularly on the subways. He was accosted by a group of uh, five, uh, I, I, I'll call them youth, but I really mean to say thugs. They they were there to intimidate and rob people, and they approached him with a screwdriver, the intent being, hey, you have some money for us, meaning give us the money or we're going to stab you with it. Well, Bernie Getz pulled a 38 revolver out of his pocket and he shot all of those assailants. I think there were four of them. Now, it's very possible he may have taken it too far because one of them was laying there on the floor screaming and and Bernie says, you know, you don't look so bad. And he shot him again. But there was such a mixed reaction from the public. Number one, because New Yorkers were just damn sick and tired of being victimized by out-of-control criminals on their subways. But on the other hand, the official response: oh, we can't have this kind of vigilante behavior. And, you know, they eventually, uh, I think they they put him on trial and, He was convicted, I don't know of what, it was a fairly mild sentence, but my point is, most people, when hearing about Bernie Goetz, tended to agree with him. And frankly, had I been on the jury, I would have probably voted to acquit him for any charges of, you know, attempted murder or anything like that. I think he actually did what a reasonable person would do when confronted by a numerically superior group of people intent on doing harm and armed with a screwdriver as a means of carrying out that threat. Now, of course, New York does not allow people to carry a gun for armed self-defense. And I believe it's still that way to this day. You know, getting a permit to carry in New York City, pff, nearly impossible. And at the risk of sounding like, you know, I'm, I'm just trying to promote uh, vigilantism, I'm going to suggest, though, that if you live in an area where... It's, it's appropriate and where legally you're not in any kind of jeopardy to carry a firearm with you, you should do so. Not because I have this Rambo fantasy that we're all going to ride to the rescue and, you will know, save the fair maiden in distress, but you just don't know when a situation like this is going to unfold. And frankly, pulling a gun may not be the best way to do it. Sometimes all it takes is someone speaking up and just saying, knock it off. And That'll give courage to other people, but somebody's got to find the courage to act, and it's it's disturbing to see that video and you can just see people i mean the the look of desperation on the woman's face in the subway as this guy is is pulling her around by her hair and 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 touching her and kind of um just he he's he's keeping her trapped to where she can't get away from him. You can see her looking around, please somebody step up and help me, and you can see everybody on that train just averting their eyes or changing seats and just, uh, it's not my business. I don't, I don't see it. It doesn't exist. I'm not saying violence is the only answer, but if even one person had spoken up, yes, Mr. Thug might have turned his attention on them. And it's very likely that based on his behavior probably would have turned into some kind of violence. But would it still be the wrong thing to do? See, I can't answer that for you. I think I know what I would do in such a situation, and I'm not a brave guy, and I'm not a heroic guy, but I don't think my conscience would let me sit there and watch somebody else be abused with impunity. That's a risk I'm willing to take, and if i got to take my lumps and maybe end up in the emergency room or worse,
0: I'd rather do that than sit by and just watch it happen. This is The Brian Hyde Show.